Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello everyone, this is Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer Dr Sam Willis. And he is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. And we are your hosts for Histories of the Unexpected, in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has a history. Like blood, or the itch, or the study, or the signature, which is all about Henry VIII. And power. Well, the smile, that's all about the French Revolution. The hand is about medieval kings and the curing of scrofula. Mmm, smoke's all about smuggling. The paperclip is all about the Stasi. Well, it's an enormously fun thing to do, and we are going to be live at the London Podcast Festival at 9.30pm on the 15th of September 2017, and it's at King's Place, Hall 2, near King's Cross. Come and see us. Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected. Now we usually spend our time discussing the history of things that you wouldn't expect have histories. Um, but we're also doing a, uh, a separate strand on... A little mini strand. How to be a historian. Yes. That's what we decided. And we, we're, I'm asked so often about what I do, how I got into it, what it's like to be a historian, all these sort of things. So um, this episode is part of that and we're going to be talking about how we became historians. Yeah, in the last episode we talked about basically what we do as historians. You know, uh, I basically teach in the university, Sam is a public and TV uh, historian, so two you know, different and, and overlapping worlds. And what we wanted to do was to have a sort of little strand where we talked about different aspects of what it is like to be a historian. So today it's all about how we became historians. So, Sam, let me start with you and say, so, so, how did you become interested in history? Um, and then where did you go with it? No, so it's, it's a really interesting and important question, I think, this, because I, I'm asked this a lot, and I'm often asked the question by people who have a preconceived idea about two things. One is that I'm very passionate about history, are you, are you not and, passionate about history? And not in the way that people think, I don't reckon. Yeah. And two, that they think that people who are interested in history have often been inspired by a teacher at school. I've got, I've got a big, big, big issue with this. Mm. Um, 
I challenge any of you who are listening. Hello, everyone. Hello. Um, do you know of an example of someone who's come up to you and said, oh, um, I love physics because I had a very good physics teacher, or I love English because I had a very good English teacher? Perhaps you do, perhaps you do. But I think that it is particularly and strangely associated I do actually with in history. both those cases <laughs> in physics and English. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think this association with with b- being inspired by history yes, I think is is weirdly associated with? I think it probably. I think it probably is, and also the reverse. It's the you know people saying that I was put off history. Yeah. From a very early age. Right. So this is the thing that bothers me about yeah. it is that people get into history nowadays and and i think in the past as well at different stages of their lives for different reasons and they can be inspired by teachers at school okay i don't say you can't be inspired by a teacher but you could also be inspired by people in podcasts on the radio um by books by all sorts of different things or you can suddenly just go through a phase in your life something significant might happen and you suddenly go Oh, well, I'd actually really like to know about my family tree. I don't know. You yep. suddenly get into yep, family yep. research. And actually, there are people getting into history throughout their lives at different times for different reasons. And it certainly isn't a flick of a switch when I mean, you're eight. I mean, I think it's one of the, it's one of the reasons why we do the unexpected podcasts in that we want to make history exciting and accessible and interesting to a broad range of people. Yeah. You know, and it, and it's not just, you know, it's, it's, and it's different from what people might, might get at school. And it's, it's the aim of it is to stimulate that kind of interest and to get people thinking in kind of, you know, innovative ways about the past. Yes. And that's what I like about history. I I like the intellectual and creative challenge it poses to me. And I think that I could do it in all sorts of things, not just history. And if I, so for me, history is my job. Yeah. And if I wasn't applying myself to history, I'd be applying myself to something else. And I don't think I'd be sitting around reading history books. That's the kind of the fundamental yeah, yeah. thing with me. Whereas, yeah. a, a lot, you know, a lot of people are very passionate about history and it's their, you know, it's very much their life. It is my life, but it's actually, it's also my job. So when I'm not working, I'm certainly not reading history books. Yeah. I, to be honest, I like uh, more than, than reading history books. The thing that really motivates me is historical research. That's the thing that makes me so get up. So you like in the discovering things. So I like discovering things. I like being in archives. I like that kind of challenge. Yeah. You know, I see myself as a kind of, you know, Sherlock Holmes type. Yeah. <laughs> but, no, you know, I mean, that's the thing that really. So you find a problem and you, you find the answer. But I used yeah. to be like that. Yeah. Um, certainly when I was doing my PhD and then I wrote a load of books after that. And I, that yeah. was what I liked doing. Yeah. But now as I'm doing many more broad things like histories of the unexpected. Yeah. Um, I'm enjoying having a kind of a large, base of historical knowledge which will allow you to question and get into the past in different ways which i yeah. didn't have before because yeah, i didn't yeah, know yeah, enough yeah. history yeah um so i think that point but is is that the way you appreciate history and the way that i i use it for my work or i i i apply myself to to, to the historical kind of problems around yeah. there changes throughout your life yeah so but how but backtrack how yeah, did you sorry. how did you first get into history what was if i didn't didn't do history for a level Oh, you didn't? Uh, no, I didn't do it at, for the first year at university. Right. Um, I s- changed to history the second year of university. Um, I was, I did French. Very wise choice. Languages, French, Spanish, and politics. There was a myth that I was good at languages at school. It was untrue, and I always knew it was untrue, and I was never brave right. enough to tell anyone. <laughs> I basically didn't understand it, and I was terrible at speaking foreign languages. I can read them very well, but I can't speak them. I just don't have the... I, don't, I didn't know that about you. I don't have the accent in my head. Can't do it. Um, 
politics I loathed. Right. Um, and so I did archaeology at university. Yeah. Uh, for the first year and didn't understand it, thought it was nonsense, did really badly at it. Right. Thirds, you know, I was trying quite hard. I didn't yeah, get yeah. thirds through laziness. I just yeah. wasn't getting it. Yeah. Um, and so I changed to history and archaeology and I changed the archaeology I was doing to historical archaeology and I right. suddenly became a lot more comfortable. Right. So rather than writing about um, people making uh, flint axes, uh, I was writing about... Um, you know, stuff that was happening in the 15th century. Right. But from an archaeological right. perspective. Right. Um, and I, I changed there, and then I discovered naval history, which was an option at Exeter, um, purely by chance, and I found out I could do it better than anything I'd ever done before, which was yeah. a bit of a surprise. <laughs> so uh, ever since then, I, uh, I, I kind of I went in, into a very sort of focused stage of trying to rewrite an important bit of naval history uh, and since then i've been able to think creatively about the past and have made a career out of doing so mm, brilliant i am one of those people who was inspired by a teacher uh very early on all right I, I, history was the his kind of history but you just said I you were inspired in in physics and in lots English of as well. So why did you end up doing history? No, no, no. I knew I knew other people who had been inspired by good English teachers and oh, and, okay. and and physics teachers. No, I, I I was inspired by a whole range of teachers uh, at school. But why why history? I mean, um, there's several several things. Um, Wasn't your dad a teacher? My dad was a teacher, English okay. English teacher. Yeah, um, my whole family are. are so you were ready to be inspired by teachers. I was ready to be inspired yeah. by I, teachers. I pretty much didn't like any I had, of my teachers because they had, made me do work. I I, <laughs> I I quite enjoy. I was a bit of a swat yeah. as a as a as a young child, um, and still am. Um, I think the, a range of things. I think what what I I was captivated by history from a very early age, partly through teachers. Um, and I remember one of the first projects that I did was related to a brilliant TV series called The Way We Used to Live. And there were two TV series. There was one about the Victorians and one about World War Two. And it was in my final year of primary school. And we did World War Two accompanied by this series. And I did this amazing project uh, and I won the Jefferson Trophy for it, for my history work. And, and I, I still have on my desk at work a tiny little cup little silver cup, Jefferson, Jefferson trophy. Um, and I think the world war two was what had really captivated me. And I remember building this enormous um, black box with a big lid, uh, that housed all these different elements of the project. And my grandfather, uh, had, you know, like most grandfathers of people, my age had fought during world war two. And I had the idea of recording him, of, you know, interviewing him about it, age 10 or 11. And I no longer have those tapes, but basically he did two tapes of his experiences. So those were, those were in it. And then I, I used that as prompts to write about it. And, and I think it just a topic like that, that came through a TV program, that, that was connected to a grandfather who had experienced a, uh, a period of history and could talk in a really, you know, erudite and clever way about it. He, he was a historian as well. Um, that really kind of fired my imagination. And then when I went to secondary school, a what amazing teacher, John Philip, at my school, um, 
was just an incredibly inspiring person. And I just remember just being able to come home after having been in his lessons and I could just sit down and regurgitate. I would just remembered everything he said mm. and just regurgitated it. And it didn't matter what it was, whether it was about the Romans, whether it was about, you know, Mary Tudor and, and the, the sort of Marian burnings or whether it was about World War One. I. I was just, you know, it, I found it amazing. Um, I had appalling teachers as well. I had the, one of the worst A-level teachers who shall remain nameless. Um, but her idea of teaching me was to read out of a textbook. Uh, and we were doing uh, 19th century diplomatic history. And mm. there is nothing more guaranteed to put you off history uh, than that. Having said that, you know, I, I have been into schools, observed teachers who are the most inspiring, you know, people alive um then i i went to university uh and did um a a degree in modern history which at oxford basically meant non-ancient um and there i had a series of uh, of great tutors uh toby barnard was my college tutor uh who's somebody who worked on early modern uh 18th century ireland and material culture and I think he was a really important influence on, you know, the way in which my, my interests developed. I took a lot of early modern papers. So we're talking, you know, Tudors and Stuarts, 16th, 17th century. And the way that I, I then took an MA, uh, an interdisciplinary MA in, in politics, patronage and literature around the English Renaissance. So it was a sort of literary and history degree and then did a PhD. And the PhD was on women letter writers. And what's and interesting is how, this is the this is the the, the minimum requirements you have to do. The so minimum if you want to go into a, yeah. a, a job as an academic historian, it's university, MA, PhD. Yeah. Well, I did mine the other way around. I did a PhD yeah. first and yeah. then an MA. Oh, you did? It's cheating. <laughs> <laughs> I did it in a different subject, but it's more or less cheating. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so so you then then you have the tricky point of actually going from your PhD to into a into, into a job, into a job. So, which is really tough which is very tough and the job market is incredibly difficult nowadays i mean traditionally you would have you would have had a postdoc and then you would sort of go straight into a job so postdoc being a, po a research po project po after your doctorate postdoctoral research you either i mean you either get a fellowship a postdoctoral fellowship which means that you can pursue a topic of your own choosing or you become a postdoctoral researcher on a somebody else's big project, yeah. and that'd be two years, maybe two to th two to three years. Yeah. The same as um, maybe sometimes little, as much as another PhD, more. maybe yeah. three or a bit more. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you would go from that into uh, a lecturing job, um, so a junior lecturer. But yeah, yeah, you've got to when you're doing your postdoctorate, you're also learning to teach as well. Yeah, I think that's exactly. Important exactly. You're not going to get exactly. an academic job unless you have teaching. And experience. indeed, when you're doing your when you're doing your PhD nowadays, you've normally got some kind of teaching experience. So universities, it's their it's their duty to train up their PhD students. If you take somebody on to do a PhD, you need to train them up. You have a duty of care to train them up in order to advance their careers later on. But yeah, I mean. It's it's a career that I've really enjoyed, but what I'm what I'm intrigued with is is why is is why you became the kind of historian you became. Okay. So with for you, why what was it about naval history? You said you were good at it. Yeah. But what is it about naval history that really, you know, that made you an, a naval historian rather than somebody who say studied well, the Anglo-Saxons? I was also very good Romans? at the Crusades. 
and I was also quite good at um, some Anglo-Saxon stuff and invasions. Right. Uh, so it wasn't just naval history that I was good at. I just, right. I think I matured in my brain at about that period. So middle of the second year at university, something happened. And I just started to get it. Yeah. Uh, but I come from a naval family, apart from my dad. Uh, uh, okay. So my grandfather was in the Navy. Navy. His... Well, it's really interesting you said that. You said, okay, as if that makes sense. It doesn't in any way make sense for me to be a good naval historian just because my grandfather was in the Navy. No, but it suggests a kind of a fat, an interest and you know a knowledge about that okay, so, particular Okay, so, well, the only knowledge area. I had is that in I had no knowledge of it at all. Um, so but, there, there might have been a few paintings of ships on my grandfather's dining room wall. Right. And uh, I think Dad had a portrait of Nelson in the loo, weirdly. Yeah, I, I, the Navy's in your blood. <laughs> um, and we had swords. Well, my mum's side, they were in the army. Um, yeah. And and various people. Did you not, sail? Or uh, did you get into it that way as well? Uh, uh, I decided to go to sea when I did my PhD. Right. To right. learn to sail squaring ships, which I was writing right. about. Um, no, so it's it's it was it was a really weird thing. So I'd never read a naval history book in my. I'd never read a history book in my life actually. By the time I did history. Um, but I was vaguely interested to in it. The the kind of the square riggy thing appealed to me. What really appealed to me is the is the, the sort of the hidden language behind it all. I've all. I was always interested in linguistics. I know I said I was bad at languages. Mm. So when you're writing about square rig ships, you have spritzels, spritzel topmasts, to gallant stay sails. I loved that. I was like, this it's is a language you've, you've lost is, me already. This is nonsense. Um, and what was clear very quickly is that there was a barrier in the language of the Age of Sail, which was stopping historians writing about it properly. Right, right. So it suddenly seemed a very clear path for me. So I'll just learn how to do it. And mm. then I can, I, then then the holes in the history will become obvious. So then I can fill in a hole, do a PhD, job done. Um, so I don't know. I, I wrote, the first essay I really wrote a good essay on was on, was on Arabic sources of the Crusades. Right. And that's when I realised I could actually do this. Yeah. Um, and then shortly after that, I... Without Arabic, though. Without Arabic, I was reading, yeah, I was reading yeah. translations of them. Yeah. Um, and then I wrote one on the originality of Nelson's tactics, which is more or less what I did. My ended up doing my PhD on. Mm. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, if if the Navy is in your blood, which I don't think is true, <laughs> um, I, I was definitely the weird thing. Right, is that I was definitely interested in naval history, but I have no idea where that came from. Mm. And it's not just enough to say it's because your grandfather was in the Navy, because he never no. really spoke no, no, about no, no, it. No, no. And there were no. just there were three paintings in the house. That was it. That was literally it. But I have a I've got a, a proper naval family and we have generations of people in my family in the Navy. Mm. Um we never really spoke about it. Uh you know, it just it was just sort yeah. of one of those things. Maybe subconsciously it came in, but it, it certainly doesn't explain why I'm good at it. No. Um Unless you believe in in all sorts of nonsense things, which I, you know, <laughs> which I don't, I don't, no, I don't. But if there is one thing that would make me believe in in reincarnation and afterlives and fates, it's my ability to write naval history. Weirdly, <laughs> and you're very good at it. You're very good at it. That's You've written kind. a lot of it. Yeah, I am very kind. I know. <laughs> I know. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So I work on women's history, gender history, Tudor and Stuart politics. Um, and I, I suppose I had at university a pretty good grounding across all periods. Yeah. And across, you know, a sort of global history and a sort of schooling in historiography. So the kind of theory of history, the history of history and comparative history. And so what this allowed me to do was to, from this kind of experience of a range of topics to sort of hone in on a, on a particular topic. And it actually came, the, the sort of concentration on early modern came pretty early on. Uh, and again, I think it was the, it was the kind of courses that I was, that I was taking. So there were big survey courses, but I remember doing a course on the nobility and gentry, uh, which I think they still run, you know, 25 years later, more mm-hmm. or less unchanged. Um, and that, you know, that, what that meant was that I was, I was, I was asked to read a range of primary documents. Um, that I found absolutely fascinating. And I remember reading a collection called Two Elizabethan Women, uh, which was a collection of letters by two women, uh, one, uh, a mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, uh, Joan and Maria Thin. And these are the most extraordinary, uh, examples. I've spoken about them, uh, before. Uh, but I think something like that really, that sort of primary material sparked my interest. Okay. And I also remember reading a couple of really seminal articles. Uh, and I think what it is, it's, it's about the sort of the intellectual curiosity, but also the. When you read something, you go, Oh, that's clever. Oh, it's clever. <laughs> They've really what thought I, about what that I think in I'm inspired way. by is I, I think what I find really provoking is, is argument. Mm. So, um, you know, and I think it's the, it's the kind of like, Oh, you really think that? And it's kind of like going yeah. against the grain. And that's the, having read the primary sources yourselves. And then you read what a historian says about them. Yes. And that's great. And then when you suddenly go, you could suddenly respect people and go, that's amazing what yeah. they've just done. That's really, really and clever. Like, <laughs> and I like, and I like debate and dispute yeah. and arguing and going against people. And I think, I think with women's history, that was one of the things that I really liked about it was this, uh, at that, at that period, it was this sense that it was a marginal it was a marginal field quite quite wrongly was a marginal field and i think it wasn't something that was in the mainstream um there was still a sense that you were you were going out and you were finding things so with my first book on tudor women letter i just when i did that as a phd 
I went to a, a cocktail party in Oxford and somebody said, oh, that won't be a very long PhD. You know, there aren't any. And I thought, all right, well, sod you. I, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm going to go and, you know, prove you wrong. Went out, spent a year in the archives and kind of, and found it, found all this material, you know, over three and a half thousand letters, uh, which nobody had really looked at before. And then what it's about is about, in, it's about interpreting that and imposing your, your, your particular view on it. Yeah. Um, you know, so, reading, reading through it. And I think that, I think that was one of the things that I find really, the other thing that got me was this idea about women and politics, you know, this idea, and particularly Tudor, Tudor, Tudor historians, you know, um, thinking that it's a very sort of male world. And I remember being influenced by a woman called Barbara Harris, who's a very dear friend, uh, at, uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, um, and has written some great books uh on on women and, and their political involvement and that was something that i really got um interested in yeah and sort of and really wanted to sort of and feel absolutely passionate about that yeah and about you know so so i think that it's about it's about that kind of sense of intellectual inquiry yeah so so one one of which is is the way you break down your subject and you look at it the approach you use and yeah. two is is the subject itself which is going to be narrow for your phd but then you can broaden out so in my terms i was doing something on the 18th century navy yeah but there are so many themes associated with that which i yeah. then go on to explore whether it's maritime history shipwrecks weaponry um law enforcement uh revolutions trade castles um, castles well you know um yeah. it's it, it is actually all linked you could all link back yeah. to what, what i started off with yeah um, which is you know i've also always been interested in the relationship between objects and history yeah so yeah. i started off with explaining how as, warships, a, as an archaeologist yeah, as an absolutely. archaeologist as well how yeah. objects the physical side of things and how understanding a physical thing can help you help you rewrite yeah. history but you know i think th these were our examples of how we got in history and what we did and I, i'm now a public historian you're an academic historian who's doing public history as well yeah um you know how do th these are only two my point to make i think is that these are only two ways uh, and very, I think, very different, very different, different and unique, yeah. unique routes through. And certainly with what I do, no one will have a similar route to TV history as someone else. There isn't a path. No. You've just got to kind of stumble your way through and suddenly you find yourself on the stage. Yeah. Um, academic stuff, it's a bit more rigid as in you do MA, PhD, maybe postdoc, bit a of teaching. Track, and there's a track through. Yeah. But, so, but, but the, this is making a career out of history rather than getting into history. Yes. And, for all of you out there listening, um, I, I, know I hope you're interested in history, which is why you're listening to this podcast. Hello. Hello. But the, the you know, uh, deciding on your subjects, a really interesting thing, uh, a really interesting point. And it, it, you can just be interested in all history and ge a generalist, but um, I would thoroughly recommend and advise you to start narrowing down an interest and to really really understanding it um and then you can get a sense of what other people have written about it you get a sense of the holes in this and then you can start to really find your feet as a person you don't you don't need to change the way people think about it but you, once you realize and you can understand everything that's been written about a particular subject um you get an enormous kind of yeah. sense of satisfa satisfaction there, don't yeah. you? I mean, there, there are several several sort of elements to this. I suppose one is that you can you can become an expert in a particular area through reading the history books and watching the documentaries on it. You can then go out and start doing your own historical research on that. Yeah, you know, li libraries and archives are places that are open to ordinary to everyone. 
yep. to everyone. I mean, the key is then is then learning how to find those documents, then learning how to read them and how to interpret them. So you the, know, the first stage is to get yourself into one of these places. Yes. Don't be afraid of it. They are they are set up and designed to allow people access yes. to. Um, some of them you might need written pro- proof to say I, I actually have to come in here but it's something like the National Archives you can just literally rock up and yeah. say right I'd like a reader's ticket yeah. and you go and you, I'm just, gonna you order- just need to take along proof of address and some sort of photo ID yeah. and you can go in and the, and the, um, the everyone there is the, the, the archivists are so helpful um, and you say I'm interested you can be very vague I'm interested in just a period I don't know anything a subject something and you'll be able to find something or drop a document get your hands on it and have a read of it absolutely the other way the other way in is to get in touch and we should talk about this in a later a podcast. The other way in is to talk is to join your local history societies. Most counties will have a, a local history society, and they will organise talks that you can go along to. Um, the Historical Association is a nationwide society with local branches. They are brilliant for allowing you to access history. So you can go along and, and, and have talks. But also, what you've got is a group of people who are like-minded and interested in history and as a community yeah. are involved in projects. Yeah, so locally you, you can, can say, right, um, someone might come up and say, I, I was talking to someone the other day and they said uh, they live in Topsham, just up the road, little estuary town just outside Exeter on the way to Exmouth. And they were very interested in what was going on in Topsham in the Civil War. And you could go, all right, that sounds fun. I'm interested in that. And off you go together to the local um, local history. Email uh, Mark Stoyle. Yeah. <laughs> um, at Southampton. He um, knows everything about yeah. Devon and the so, Civil you know, War. Uh, and you just allow yourself to be led also... Um, just just search as much as possible and, and be aware that your interests change. I mean, as we've been doing this Histories of the Unexpected, I've become massively interested in the history of shadows and yeah. dust. And leans. And the lean. The lean's amazing. About everything I being think, wonky. What you were talking about earlier on, about the the sort of the the way in which you you have this sort of bizarre journey that as a at school you have a very sort of wide-ranging sort of taste of history and also at university and then you become highly specialized and as a professional historian you can often become quite narrow i think one of the things that i've i enjoy about teaching is teaching outside of my historical period and when i my first job first proper teaching job was in the us i was a tenure track professor in michigan and i was basically expected to teach from rome roman europe through to the 18th century. Um, and it, what it did, I mean, it was an absolute nightmare getting up all that material in, um, you know, in a short space of time. I wrote 90 lectures in my first year. God. But what it did was it gave you this incredible grounding yeah. and reach across, across the centuries. And I, and I like that. I like no, being I, able I like to see well. things yeah. in, in perspective. And one of the things I enjoy about this podcast is actually having, it forces me to research Different periods, different periods, yeah. and and different topics. But what I was going to say, one of these advantages me, so I, I did a degree in history and archaeology, and my master's was in archaeology. Yeah, um, but my PhD was in history, um, yeah. and so I, I am actually as comfortable talking about 2000 BC as I am. Yeah, 1850. Finally, one of the things that I just responding to what you were saying about the the, the listeners, people who are who are out there listening to it. And one of the things that I think hello. about, about <laughs> hello, one of the things I think about not being a professional historian, and a professional historian basically means you are paid to do a job, to be in a university, to teach, to do do you know various things, and there are particular requirements on that. It takes up a lot of your time. Um, I think one of the 
freedoms about not being a professional historian is that you can read whatever you want. Yeah. You don't have to read specific things because it needs to be on a particular course or because you've got to write a particular research article or something. So you have the freedom to be able to read as widely as you want. And history is an incredibly interesting subject. You just go into your local bookshop and you just go through the shelves and there are a bewildering number of books that are being written. I mean, what's terrifying as a professional historian who is supposed to keep up with the field is that simply the output of books yeah. and research articles is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. I think what we should do is do an episode next on um, working with catalogues and what we could do, actually do is just search through something on the British Library catalogue or the National Archives catalogue and talk about what we're looking for, how we're finding it, what's there. Ooh, very that, good. It's quite an interesting I way to talk about, I want to talk about children's history, riffing on your your point about mm. teachers. How, how, how children get, get how, inspired How children get into history. Well, let, let's yeah. do that. Let's do children's next, and then I think we'll do a uh, interactive... How to look through a catalogue. It sounds really boring, but I trust me, it's amazing. It's um, it's so fascinating when you you follow follow rabbits down holes, don't you? Yeah, and then brilliant. you um, mm, well, choose a topic. I know. I happen to know of a couple of very good ones. Good. I'm sure you do. I'm <laughs> sure you do. Great. Well, thanks for thank listening, you everyone. for listening, everyone. Uh, yeah, and good luck, and let us know how you get on. Um, if you enjoyed us, if you enjoyed listening to us, um, have a look at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected. We'll be doing these strands on how to be an historian alongside our usual strands of unexpected subjects. And you can follow us on Twitter at unexpectedpod for the unexpected podcasts, and for me, at James Daybell. And I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. So do please follow us and get in touch. Bye. Bye. Bad. It's utter nonsense. <laughs> but, you know, there, are, there there is a science behind it that you can tell whether somebody has been drinking, is uh, is uh, is taking drugs. It, you can tell the sex or the age of people by their handedness, by their by their handwriting. Yeah. Left left handedness. Um, and there, you know, it's it's it really is an, an important science. But it has been applied in the most horrific ways. Yep. And Tom Davies is the is the kind of the leading authority on the application of this to to sort of serious literary and historical scholarship. Right. But what I've got here, uh, one of the things that we did in that masterclass was we read a letter. We read a letter from Henry VIII to Anne Boleyn. And one of the things with Henry is that Henry was more or less allergic to paperwork. Um he would would almost always use a secretary uh, for any of his writing. There are a handful of letters that he wrote in his own hand. Uh, there's a, there are some letters to Wolsey, so his chief minister in the first part of his reign before Cromwell uh, takes over uh, in the th in the 1530s, and uh, all almost all of his letters to Anne Boleyn, uh, which I think is 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 really revealing. Um, so what we did was we we had a go at paleography and we went through one one of his letters. One of the questions from an audience member, so one of the participants, was what about what can we tell about his personality uh, from the from the letter? So it got me thinking about graphology. And I've got a book here, uh, handwriting of the famous and infamous uh, by Sheila Lowe, which goes through all sorts of people, uh, the famous American serial killer, Ted Bundy, Elizabeth I, Charles Dickens, Kennedy, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Abraham Lincoln, all, all sorts of all sorts of people. But it's got an example of 
uh, a letter uh, from Henry VIII, uh, which I think, is, yes, it is to Wolsey, so mine own good cardinal um, here. And I just wanted to read you some of the uh, analysis of it here uh, in this book. So a personality overview. Henry's handwriting emphasizes vigorous movement with its moderately large overall size in a tight, compact picture of space, the mark of a busy person who crowded as many activities into each day as possible. There's a certain capricious quality to the changeable slant, size and baseline, while weakness is not inferred in as much as he would not allow himself to be pushed around. The evidence indicates that Henry would certainly have changed his mind if and when presented with more attractive possibilities. And then it goes up physical drive. The blotchy, muddy quality cannot be explained simply by the writing instruments of the day, as most of the writing has at least moderate clarity. Instead, it reveals the uninhibited indulgence of the writer's baser urges. <laughs> These included Henry's need for food, sex, money, and material pursuits. I mean, it's utter, utter nonsense. This idea that it's that it's nothing to do with the instruments of the time or the kind of script that he's writing in, all of those sort of registers yeah. are incredibly important for understanding understanding this yeah so it, basically it's in that ex in that example in that example nonsense yeah, it is nonsense well uh i think that brings to an end our extra signature podcast yep. signatures number two very good do you know what actually i while i was just finishing up on my my chapter on um on you, the signature you practiced your signature no i practiced it left-handed Oh, so I was, I, was, I did. Um, I was writing about Nelson, who had his arm amputated, yes. and so he had to do his signature. So you have these amazing letters of like really important <laughs> state matters, but they look like they're signed by a six-year-old. So he gets his secretary to to dictate well, it. Show me your and, show um, me your signature with your left hand. Unbelievably bad. I'll have a go um, as well. Yeah. Okay. Here we are. Uh, yeah, I look like a, a very unwell six-year-old. Oh my God! It's Isn't it so, so difficult? difficult? And to do it with any kind of elan or excitement uh, doesn't work. So I'm going to do my proper signature underneath Look at it. That. that is nuts. Oh, yours is actually quite neat. Well, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, it's actually not much better than my signature normally. I have a, I have absolutely atrocious handwriting. That's sort of like a, a sort of dyslexic spider on, on sort of acid and vodka. I mean, so mine actually hasn't come out too badly. It felt terrible. But have you noticed what's wrong with my dots on my eyes? They're lines. They're like they're lines. They're yes. like they're an inch long, half an inch long. That's a massive signature. Talking about grandiose signatures. It is a massive signature, but so it's a statement. Sam. So I, hang on, I'm going to try and do <laughs> the it. The Willis like, signature. You know when you sign your signature for a passport thing, yes, and you have to do it inside. Oh no, the you'll box. never be able to do that. Okay, I'm going to try and do this left-handed. Oh my god, you're testing me now. I'm I, to I do the don't same. think I can. <laughs> I can't, no one would take me seriously. Ah, basically, look. is what I've discovered. Are you better? Yeah, because I'm doing it on my lap. And it's slightly. What did you do before? Did you do it on oh, your I face? just did it. No, I just did it on the. <laughs> no, no, it's rubbish. I was all right when I was doing the bit. It's actually uh, the. It's all right when you're doing unjoined up letters, but when you're joining up, that's yeah. when it becomes all wiggly. Actually, that's not too bad. You can just about make out. TLT. Yeah. But you know what? Well, the key thing there is that I there was in no way was I actually doing a signature. I was just desperately trying to write the letters of my name. Well, well done. Thank you. 
Uh, everyone, try and write your signatures left-handed, and particularly try and do it in a tiny box, like we're supposed to do for your passports. Um, thank thank you, you for listening. Yes, absolutely. Um, and if you'd like to, um, if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, and tell all of your friends. We're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr. Sam Willis. And, and you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow us at Histories of the Unexpected at Unexpected Pod. We are proud to be part of the excellent History Hit Network, home of Dan Snow's History Hit and other great shows. You can find out more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months, show notes, video clips, photos of everything we discuss and much, much more at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected. Bye. Goodbye. Freud of the Reformation, as always. Ships, as always. Erasmus. Uh, Erasmus. Uh, uh, Parliament. Um, Moulin Rouge. Blazing Saddles. Pope. Uh, Nutty Professor. Very good. Samuel Pepys. Yeah, always Samuel Pepys. And, always. And that poor man on the very crowded train from Glasgow. Yes, bless him. Bless him. Everyone, yes, just send your thoughts and good wishes to him. He's probably recovering still. Um, that was the history of the farts. Believe it or not, I loved that. That was good. <laughs> um... Everyone, get in touch. Um, and we will see you soon next time. Bye. Bye. If you enjoy this podcast and you like learning about the past, check out my latest venture. It's called History Masterclass, and it's a new type of historical event where you can actually learn in person from the best historians around today in unique and stunning historical locations. You can find out more at thehistorymasterclass.com and follow on Facebook and Twitter at thehistorymc. 